a drunk king versus a radical feminist, a genocidal maniac versus a big stick, and the Jews versus the rest of the world. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are both pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Uh, remind you guys to like, subscribe, and follow us if you like us. If you want to subscribe, please do so. It helps us out, and it gets the gospel out there. That's right. Yep. So, Brandon, welcome today. What are we talking about? We're all business now, man. We used to ch- we used to chat. We used to have fun, but no more. Yeah. You know, we got a lot to cover here. Some people like the chatting. Some people don't like the chatting. You know, no one, no one likes the chatting. Oh, I think it's people all, like it. All killer, no I th- filler. I think people like it. Sometimes you just want to zone out to people. Saying stuff about nothing, you know. I don't think they want to send out to us. Yeah, that's actually probably true. Yeah, don't we don't have very true. much to say. I mean, yeah, last no, week was kind of funny though. We we're talking about the wall and Nehemiah and stuff. Oh man, there's been some good stuff. Yeah, been some really good stuff. We're, so we're coming actually to the end of the historical books today. <gasps> so we've gone through the Pentateuch, those first five books, Got the it. Law of Moses. That took yep. us a long time. Yep. And then we've gone through. Now this will be our twelfth historical book. Amen. And then we'll get into the the poetry. Ah, gotta love it. Which Song of Solomon? It sounds, it sounds like, oh, it's so, you know, like lofty and like nice and loving. Mm-hmm. It's pretty It's pretty dark. Pretty I dark mean, stuff. one of my favorite books, Job. Yeah, pretty rough stuff. It's a rough book, but it, it's... Oh, I love Job. Job's going to yeah. be really good. We'll cover that in the next two weeks. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, well, just quick review of Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll set us up for Esther. So Ezra and Nehemiah, we saw the rebuilding of God's temple mm-hmm. and Ezra's attempts to renew God's people followed by yep. Nehemiah, which was the rebuilding of, of the city of Jerusalem, the yep. walls, followed by another attempt to renew God's people and renew the covenant. Keyword, attempt. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is, it, it, there's a lot of disappointment, a lot of longing. Mm-hmm. The temple isn't what it used to be. The, the um, people are still disobedient to God's covenant. There's there's still a lot of, a lot of struggle. And in Esther, I feel like we see some some more of that reality, right? That God's people are still not what they should be, right? Not by a long shot, but God is still faithful. Yeah. So Esther fits into Ezra and Nehemiah by being the the final historical book, but it really takes place kind of in the middle of all the action mm-hmm. of Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. So it's after the the Jews have been allowed to go back. From exile to return back to Jerusalem, right. and, where, and where's Esther located? Story? But Esther is in Persia and right. Susa, the capital of Persia. So Esther is part of the Jews that didn't respond to that call to go back to Jerusalem. Strange. So that's already a problem right. of why didn't they go back um, when that's the promised land? Right. But really, Esther is just very, very complicated. Esther is not squeaky clean mm-hmm. like we may have thought. Right. Uh, from I don't know when we read about her as, as kids in, in church or whatever. Maybe you've never read the book. I don't know. But right. often we we portray her as this upright, virtuous woman. And she certainly is courageous. She certainly is bold. And she certainly is used by God in a big way. But there's, there's some things here that are a little bit sketchy, I would say, that maybe, yeah, yeah she's not quite as clean as we we thought she was well i mean even Same just Mordecai. to your point a second ago you know like these are jews that didn't go with the rest of the people back to the promised land right yeah so i mean that's that's a, you know at first a strange thing i think it's you know interesting we mentioned last week that uh in this book we do see the sovereignty or we mentioned this two weeks ago when we were talking about ezra you mentioned that god's sovereignty is seen especially throughout ezra and nehemiah but it's also seen in the book of esther which is strange for you to say because it doesn't mention once the name of god yeah esther doesn't mention the name of god doesn't mention 
prayer. They mention fasting, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't mention prayer. They don't mention the temple. They don't mention the worship of God. I mean, there's so much lacking from this book. Right. And it's only it's one of only two books that doesn't mention God, and Song mm-hmm. of Solomon being the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, so how is it that this can be about God's sovereignty? How, how can this be important? Well, and, and really in a sense, I think that the the way the book is written reflects the complicated reality of Esther herself. Mm. Uh, these are God's people that should have gone back. They're they're disobedient to God in certain ways. I mean, Esther seems to be, you know, not caring about dietary laws. She hides her identity as a Jew. Right. There's a lot of things like that, and yet God is still faithful to His people and mm. is still working in their situations to redeem them. Right. I mean, and, and to be fair, the ones that the the Jewish people that did go back to Jerusalem were also disobedient. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, they, in their own ways, yeah. yeah. So really, the main character, the hero of the story in Esther, is is hidden. Right. He's not named. Mm-hmm. But you can see through the circumstances, through how really unlikely things keep happening, these big coincidences, these lucky events happen, mm-hmm. that God is working. You can also see it through these reversals that keep happening. Mm-hmm. Watch as you're reading. Watch for ironies in the story of Esther. Right. Irony yeah, is a big awesome. thing. Right? Irony yeah. is where you expect one thing and you get the opposite. And, and what you see a lot is these reversals, these ironic reversals happening where a character intends one thing and the opposite happens. Mm-hmm. And we see God's hand in that, thwarting the plans of very powerful people mm-hmm. to accomplish his purpose. So God is there. He's just hidden. And I, I love that about Esther. It's a really right. cool book. Yeah. We also see in Esther the origin of the Feast of Purim. Mm-hmm. Explain. Um, yeah, Purim, Purim is a feast. Well, so when I was in Israel, I was there in the spring, so we celebrated Purim. I forget the exact date. It's the month of Adar, whatever that corresponds to. I, I don't forget. Uh, and yeah, the Feast of Purim today is like a, it's like Halloween. Um, so you 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 dress up and you come together and you celebrate. March. March, okay. I'm sure it kind of fluctuates a little bit, but yeah. So it, it, you dress up, you get dressed up as, as someone and um, you come and you celebrate. And so it's it's like Halloween, but kind of more lame. Hmm. More lame for like a secular person. I, I thought it was really cool, but you actually read the entire book of Esther. Wow! In this festival, so you have oh, cool. food, you hang out. Yeah, who, you who, did you, who did you dress up as? I dressed up as Jesus. Yeah, it seems problematic like for him. a Jewish festival. Yeah, so, uh, well, these were all Messianic Jews. That's a different story. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> of my blasphemy to in front of a bunch of Jews. But uh, but yeah, basically, you would read through the whole story, and when you hear the name of Esther, you would go ah. Uh, and when you hear uh, Mordecai, you ch- you cheer, yay! <laughs> and when you hear Haman, you go boo, nice. right? <laughs> and there's something with the Hashuers too. I think I forget. There's a couple other things, but so you, so it's it's fun. It's interactive, you know. But still, I mean, you're reading a book that we should do that here. It takes like at least 20, 30 minutes to read. It's not like a quick right. read, right? Um, and then there's one verse. I forget which verse it is, but it's the longest verse in the Hebrew Bible. So you have like they would have someone who's who's good at Hebrew try to read it in one breath. You know, like one big <laughs> run-on sentence. Anyway, it, it was it's a really fun thing, and and it's a feast that remembers the events of Esther and God's providence toward His people and His protection of His people. There you go. That's what it's all about. And that's what that's really what Esther is all about. Mm. God's providence for His people, even when they walk away from Him, even when they're not faithful like they should be. God is still working their salvation. Yeah, there's hope. Yeah. No, so it's it's a it's a great book. I'm really excited to jump into it. That's awesome. So if we were to outline it, um, how would you outline this book? I would, I would outline it in just three basic movements. Chapters one to four mm-hmm. is is Esther's mission. 
So we sort of see the the setup, and then we see what Esther has to do at the end of chapter 4. And uh, chapter 5 through 9, 19, so almost the end of the book, chapter Mm -hmm. 9, 19, we see God's rescue. How does God work through Esther's courage to redeem his people? And then the very end, 9, 20, through the end of the book, 10, 10, verse 3, we see Israel's feast. So we see how this results in the victory of God's people and this celebration that's annual for the Israelites. Right. So yeah, that's that's the basic outline. Cool. So, man. well, I think we are ready to jump in. Let's and jump in. Yeah, chapter so, one. Chapter one, verse one. We see we meet Ahasuerus, the the, the emperor. This is What's King Xerxes. Okay, I've seen the the movie Three Hundred. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, they look like that. First of all, you're a sinner. Um, sure. Second of all, yes. Guilty as charged. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> second of all, uh, yeah, I'm sure he looked exactly like that guy. Wasn't he like, I, I, I feel like I've seen parts of it, but wasn't he like nine feet tall in the movie and had like a bunch of piercings? Oh, was he tall? I know he had piercings. I don't and know if he, he was looked like a He looked like a child, but he was like had a weird voice. I've seen like clips and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Who cares? But history does tell us that Xerxes was a... He liked to party. He had an eye for women. Alcohol? Yeah, of course. Alcohol, yeah. No. He had an eye for women. He he had lots of ladies. Mm-hmm. In fact, according, according to Herodotus, the, the Greek historian, his love for women got him killed because he ended up sleeping with some of the wives of his military commanders and they assassinated him. So he was he was a party boy. Um, you know, not a great king. But yeah, I mean, this he, he fought against the, the Greeks. And mm. suffered this defeat, you mm. know, and after that he became kind of self-indulgent, is, is what according to Makes the, sense. the Greek um, mm. history. And he's displayed in this book as kind of a fool. Yeah, he's kind of being manipulated by. I mean, he looks like a fool with his wife Vashti in the beginning, and then he's manipulated kind of by Haman. And uh, he drinks a lot, and a lot of his decisions are made in a drunken fit of rage. Right. So. He's not necessarily a great guy, but we see that this that he's the first character we see, and this takes place in Susa, as I mentioned, the capital of Persia, right? Not in Jerusalem, not, not with God's people, but in, in the foreign land. And so, what we see in the first chapter is that Hashuwaris wants to display his his royalty and his glory. Mm-hmm. Chapter one, verse four, he wanted to show his royal his, his royal riches, his splendor, his pomp, and his greatness, right? And so he has this huge party. It lasts for 180 days. Followed by a Seems second exhausting. banquet. I know. <laughs> followed by a second banquet. And in order to show his greatness, so he has his own banquet, and then his wife, Vashti, the queen, uh, has her own banquet with the ladies. And so to he gets drunk, and he wants to show off, so he calls in Vashti to come before. He wants to show off his beautiful wife to his nobles. Some people speculate he wanted her to come in naked or something like that. Hmm. Uh, but either way, he's drunk, and he's... He's using her, and he's, he wants to just display her. And so Vashti refuses, right? Mm-hmm. She's with her ladies, and she says, nope, not going to do it. Well, um, that's not good <laughs> if you're the king and you want to show how powerful you are, right. and you can't even control your own house. So we see the first irony here, right? He's, he's shown as powerless when he wants to be seen as powerful. right? So his reaction, it, he responds really to the desires of his his noblemen in verses 17 and 18, we see that they say the king, the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their own husbands with contempt since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. Mm-hmm. And so basically they, what they say is you got to make an example of her. So they are scared of 
radical feminists, right? <laughs> People that will say, no, we don't have to, to have to follow. And I mean, aren't we all scared of radical feminists? Terrified. To be, to be honest. Um, now, of course, let's be fair. These aren't the radical feminists of today. Yeah. These aren't the radical feminists that are trying to replace the word manhole with maintenance cover or... Uh, well, what are some other ones? Yeah, the word amen. Amen and a women are, or <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what are the manpower has to become human effort. It's always like, you know, you want to get rid of anything that's like gender. So it's like the bad kind of feminism. There is good t- kind the, of the feminism. Blue hair, yeah. You know, no offense if your hair is blue. Just saying. It's, it's just a stereotype. It's a yeah. stereotype. Yeah. And it's very often true. So, no, this isn't like that kind of feminist. <laughs> this is just like the don't use us as objects, which is, I feel like fair. we agree with that. That's yeah. pretty fair. That's yeah. pretty fair. But but they don't want that. They don't like that. And they, so they say, you're making a decree that every man is the master of his own house. and Patriarchy. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we see that he actually removes Queen Vashti from being the queen. Ugh. And he never sees her again. So he makes an example of her. So now this is all very important. Why doesn't he just kill her? Is that not an example? Why doesn't he just kill her? Everyone else is killing each other yeah. in these stories. <laughs> so so loving. So loving, Keith is. I'll just kill her. It seems like just get her. Oh, let's move on from that. Um, so, so this all sets Anybody? up for this all sets up for the difficulty of Queen Esther's mission, mm-hmm. right? That Vashti was seen as a rebellious wife, mm-hmm. a rebellious queen. And so when Esther wants to save her people, it's going to be seen in the same light. Right. So she's going to need God's favor. So what happens in chapter two is we introduce to Mordecai. Yay. That's what we would, we would oh, yeah, say. We're going to right? I'm telling you, we got to do this party at church. Yeah. That'd be really fun. I would, yeah. I'd be down. Yeah. Um, as long as there's free candy. So Mordecai is a Benjaminite. So we see that in verse five. Did you name your son Benjamin? That's right. Nice. It's a great name. Uh, Mordecai, not so much. Dang it. But, and then we see that he has an adopted uh, niece. Esther. Hadassah is her is her mm-hmm. Hebrew name, but they, she goes by Esther. Now, this is also could be a problem. It, the name Esther, a lot of people think it's the, the named after the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, which if she is, if she's named after the Babylonian goddess, I mean, that, that's what happened with Daniel and his friends, right? They were right. named after the... But they didn't choose that. So this seems problematic. Mm-hmm. It seems concerning that it, it seems like it's giving an indication that God's people are assimilating with the nation. Right. And of course he tells her to keep her identity as a Jew secret. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is the the king decides to send out a whole, you know, retinue of, of officials, bureaucrats to find him a wife right? and to find him multiple wives really, but he's going to replace Vashti eventually. So he, he has this beauty pageant. These women come and, uh, they are beautified for a year and then they have one night with the king. Mm-hmm. And this is also sketchy, right? right? So it's pretty certain that this is sexual in mm-hmm. nature. So it's not just like, hey, who looks beautiful? It's who can please the king. Mm-hmm. And uh, Esther, that was instructed by her her uncle, her adopted uncle or adopted father, whatever, to... To, to engage with this and to win the king's heart. Mm-hmm. So she does. And the king gives her favor in the eyes of the, the head of the concubines and gives her favor in the eyes of the king. And we actually see in verse 15 of chapter 2 that she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Mm. So people are responding. There's something about Esther that God is working through her to give her favor in the eyes of others. And so we see in verse 17 of chapter 2, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. He set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Mm-hmm. So she has taken the place 
of Vashti. And so, yeah, we see this setting up for what's going to be the tension of the of the book. Right. And at the end of chapter two, it's important. Mordecai actually saves the king. Right. He he somehow learns about a plot against the king, and he mm-hmm. tells the king and saves the king's life. Right. Um, now again, this is one of those coincidences that seems that seems strange, right? Oh man, it's amazing that Mordecai would have learned this plot, but God mm-hmm. is working behind the scenes to to make this story happen. Right. So in chapter three, we meet the, the evil Haman. Boo, boo, boo. boo. Yeah. Yeah. And we learn that Haman is an Agagite, which means he's an Amalekite, and he's a descendant of King Agag. Mm-hmm. Now put on your thinking caps here and think back to what, where, did, where we heard the, the King Agag and the Amalekites before. And of course, we, we first learned the Amalekites in the journey of the Exodus, they, mm-hmm. they oppose God's people and at that point become sort of eternal enemies of God's people. Mm-hmm. And we see this in 1 Samuel 15, that that Saul, who is a Benjaminite, mm. was told by God to eradicate the Amalekites, to kill them all, but he won't kill King Agag. And so here we have a descendant That's of right. King Agag because he didn't exterminate. Now, Samuel does hack him into pieces, but... Apparently, some of his descendants survived. Right. King Agag's descendants survived because Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And so, what we're going to see in the story is a, a new Benjaminite, Mordecai, who has victory where Saul had failed. Mm. Who actually, not to spoil the story, but who will actually eradicate Haman and his family and will bring victory to God's people. Right. And so, it's, it's sort of, it reminds me of Genesis 3.15, that mm-hmm. enmity between the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. Right. That God's people are going to have strife with their enemies, but that God brings victory ultimately. Yeah. This is only a small picture of that, of course, but right. but there's that theme there. So Cool. Now, now, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Haman's an official. He's he's very lofty, and he's you know he has a sort of authority that Mordecai won't bow to him in verse two, and we can see why given right. history. Right, right. He knows this is a, an evil person with an evil lineage that he is opposed to. Mm-hmm. So this really this really riles Haman up. He cannot stand <laughs> that Mordecai will not bow to him. They won't honor him. You can see throughout Haman thinks he's. He's the, the bee's knees. Right. He thinks he's amazing. And Mordecai doesn't agree. Can, you, can so, you say that phrase one more time? The bee's knees. What does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no one knows. Huh. Um, but Mordecai it, it frustrates Haman. And so Haman decides he wants revenge on Mordecai. In fact, he goes on to say this. So we see verse 5 of chapter 3. When Haman saw Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that he was Jewish, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. When things go wrong, people just want to kill each other. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty reasonable response, right? Someone insults you and you're like, I'm going to genocide your entire (laughs) nation across the world. Yeah. (laughs) Whew. Pretty pretty insane, right? So he's he's an evil dude. Evil dude. Boo, Haman. And um, and we see that in verse seven of chapter three that he's he's plotting their downfall while he's casting poor, which are like lots, like mm-hmm. dice, yeah, not quite like dice, but that's how we think of it, right? Casting lots to determine what date he'll destroy the Jews. So that's really important because that is going to become the name of the festival at the end. Is that just like is that like a religious practice or is that just uh, for fun? Like what is it? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. I, th- I think it's just a way. For him to make a decision on this, and of course, there's a big there's a big irony here in terms of 
that 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 that's going to be the word they use for the feast. Mm. So his plotting against their downfall becomes his downfall, right. as we'll see later. But he he goes to the king and he in verses eight and ten, or eight through ten, and he he asks him. He says, "There's this rebellious people. We should really get rid of them." And the king, who's a who's just you know rube, oh, I don't know what his problem <laughs> is, but he says, "Okay, do whatever you want. Yeah, go I ahead know, and right? genocide the people." Like, <laughs> so he but he conceals who he's targeting. He doesn't tell him that it's the Jews. Now, he, now in chapter four, we see that Esther has to act on her people's behalf. Mm-hmm. And here's another irony, right? Haman had concealed who he was trying to overthrow, mm-hmm. but he doesn't realize that one of his victims has also concealed her identity. Right. So his his concealing is going to be thwarted by someone else's mm-hmm. concealing or secrecy. And so Mordecai and the Jews are mourning because they've heard about this news mm-hmm. and they're all going to die. And Esther doesn't know what's happening because she's in the palace. And so Mordecai sends word to her. And the problem, of course, is if she goes into the king without being summoned, that that bears with it the penalty of death, unless the king holds up his scepter to pardon her, basically. Right. Normally, that might not be a, a bad thing, right? Oh, who's going to kill their wife? Well, the last woman who had disrespected the king, look how she ended up. Right. And so she very well could die for this. She knows the circumstances. She'll be seen as in the same camp as, as Vashti. So she's really worried about this. Mm-hmm. But Mordecai tells her salvation is going to come one way or the other. Right. And, and of course, the really famous verse, a couple verses in this book are in chapter 4, verse 14. Yep. This is Mordecai's message to Esther. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Mm-hmm. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Right. So relief and salvation is going to come from somewhere. Who's going to initiate that? Right. Who is this force that's going to initiate that? So it's it's an implicit statement of God's sovereignty. Right. And to say you've been put here for such time as this is to say there's someone behind history that's mm-hmm. guiding all these things. Right. So the, it's clear that God is in view here. Right. At least he should be for us. Mm-hmm. You know, very often we as a society will say things that make no sense about God, right? Like Thanksgiving. Time to give thanks. Give thanks to who? To what? Yeah. Or that event was uh, morally atrocious or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Or we all, we're all here for a reason. Yeah. Like, well, but if you believe that you came from nothing, then really? that's just, you just yeah, made that up. Sense, yeah. So, but, but I think, I think there's shown in this that God is working and that God always brings salvation for his people. So mm-hmm. Mordecai's right. If it's not by you, it's going to be by someone else. But maybe you've been put here for this moment. Maybe God has a purpose in where he's placed you. Right. And, of course, we can gain a lot of wisdom from that as as followers of Christ. So her response is she's going to go in and she says, if I perish, I perish. If mm-hmm. I perish, I perish. She's She's got some boldness. Right. And I appreciate that. I mean, I, I mean that's... That's just such an amazing part of her story is mm-hmm. her her boldness, the fact that she takes a risk to redeem God's people. Right. So Mordecai, you know, gives her this mission. She clarifies it. And now we see the second se- section of the book, which is where God brings deliverance for his people. Mm-hmm. So Esther goes in before Ahasuerus and she gets favor in his sight. And we see God's work again here. He's the one who's giving her favor. Yep. He holds out the scepter. She's forgiven, and so she uses that opportunity to invite Ahasuerus and Haman to a feast that she holds. 
Now she holds a feast and then she invites him to a second feast. Mm-hmm. There's sort of pairs of feasts throughout the entire book. Like right. we saw at the beginning, he holds two two feasts, two banquets, and then at the end, there's two mentions of Purim at the end. So this is kind of part of the structure of the book. I love though verse verse chapter five verse nine. So Haman goes out. Haman so Haman gets invited by the queen, beautiful queen, influential person, and he's feeling great because the queen invited him and no one else, just the king and him. He feels very important. But as he's going out, he sees Mordecai in the king's gate. Mm -hmm. And he sees that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him, and he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. (laughs) So the problem in chapter 3 was that Mordecai didn't bow. Right. And now the problem is Mordecai doesn't rise. (laughs) So we see some more irony here, which is that Haman is just just upset no matter what. Yep. And and it's showing how ridiculous he is. But he, he goes home to his family, and he and his friends, and he's in verse eleven. Haman's bragging about, "Oh man, I have so much wealth. I have so much importance. I have so much glory. And not only that, but Queen Esther invited me to this feast. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm amazing. But he says I cannot be happy until Mordecai is dead. Right. This is uh, I, my day is still ruined, even though I have all these good things because I hate Mordecai so much. Right. And so his wife has this great idea. Well, why don't you just build a gallows? Verse fourteen of chapter five. Build a gallows." Built it 50 cubits high. So now gallows was probably actually an impale stick. Right. That's probably what, what it was. Not like our modern, well, modern, like gallows in the modern era, I should mm-hmm. say, you know, last couple hundred years. Um, this was probably a big stick mm-hmm. that you would throw someone on and they just get impaled on right. it. So she says, build it 50 cubits high. That's like 100 feet or something. That's huh? 75 feet. Yeah. That's crazy. So, that's, <laughs> so he has this massive stick built. Again, did he like, cut a redwood tree down or like a cedar? Like, what did he? No, he just what did he do? Just, together like that. Yeah, it's just a big old stick. <laughs> and he just wants again. This is the overkill thing. Like, he just wants to kill him yeah, so badly, kill him, humiliate him yeah. on the biggest stick possible. A giant <laughs> pencil. He's just gonna throw him on. So that's the plan. And of course, it's gonna it's gonna backfire. But he he makes the 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 gallows or the the stick. Chapter 6 is sort of the turning point of the whole book. Mm-hmm. So chapter 6 is when we see just exactly how God's going to frustrate the plans of Haman mm-hmm. and how he's going to exalt his people. And we see it through the story of, of Mordecai. So this is a, a chapter you could overlook if you're reading through it. It doesn't seem as important as chapter 4, right? where, where Esther makes that big statement. But this really is at the heart of the book. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see the king can't sleep. Mm-hmm. Coincidence. But again, again, you know, who's making them out used by God? Yeah. yeah, God is God is orchestrating this. It just seems like coincidence. So if you can't sleep, what do you do? You you pull out the Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> we just got through for Second Chronicles. We know <laughs> it's tough sometimes. So he pulls out the Chronicles and has him read to him, and they just happen to stumble upon upon the part where uh, Mordecai saved the king's life. Mm-hmm. They record all this stuff. So and he asks, well, did any was, it, was anything done for Mordecai to honor him? And they say, no, nothing was done. And so it says, again, coincidence, right? Verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Right? Who's, who's here that I can ask a question of? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's place, palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Right. So he comes in and goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to the king about killing Mordecai. <laughs> and the king's like, oh, who happens to be here, right? Who's the first person? And so he asks Haman, in verse in verse six, he says, "What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor?" And so, and Haman says to himself, 
whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> so he's so he he's like, oh man, okay, this is a setup. He wants to honor me, and so I'm going to go overboard, like way overboard. So he he says, you know, let the king bring one of his royal steeds. And, and have the guy sit on it and put a crown on his head, a royal crown, and put robes on him and have one of the best officials in the whole kingdom lead him through the square proclaiming this is how it should be done to the man the king wants to honor, right? So just the most like over-the-top uh, singing the praises of this man. Right. And so, of course, the irony is the king says, that's a great idea, verse 10, right? <laughs> Take the robes of the horse, do as you've said, and go do that to Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Mordecai, so Haman is forced to lead Mordecai around <laughs> to honor and praise how great he is and to do all the things to Mordecai that he wanted done for himself. Right. Irony. So, I mean, huge irony, obviously, and, and huge coincidence right. that's happening here to show that God's going to destroy the enemies of the Jews and to lift his people up. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a great little little picture here. And what's so amazing and, and really important in the story is after he goes and he tells his wife and his friends what had happened. He's so angry, right? And his wife and his friends tell him, they say, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Hmm. So we don't know why they say this. Why do they right. then know that the Jews are going to be the downfall of Haman? But for some reason, they have this instinct that God's people cannot be defeated. Right. So they warn him that mm-hmm. from their own mouth. And, and Haman, of course, does not listen. But right. God's frustrating all of his plans and reversing them, bringing them back on his own head. Yep. So in chapter 7, we see um, the second banquet of Esther. And this is the moment where she reveals Haman and, and who he is and what he's done. And so he, she says, you know, my people are going to be destroyed. The king says, Who's, who is this that's done this? She says it's it's that wicked Haman, right? A, a foe, an Ooh. enemy, that wicked this wicked Haman, and so the king actually storms out in a rage. He's kind of a little bit tipsy at this point. Oh, for sure. Oh, he storms out of the room, and Haman falls on the couch of Esther to plead for his life. And the king walks back in, and he goes, "Trying to assault my wife," <laughs> and so he takes Mordecai and he throws him on the giant stick. Got right? It. He he goes to the gallows intended for Mordecai. It said like three times in the end of this chapter. Right? It was meant for. Designed for Mordecai, is supposed to kill Mordecai, and right. Haman is killed on the impale stick right. instead. So, irony, right? God, Haman wanted to destroy Mordecai and the gallows. Now he's hung on the gallows. Mm. And we see that Haman wanted the Jews plundered, but now King Ahasuerus gives the wealth of Haman to Esther, who gives it to Mordecai. Mm-hmm. So Mordecai is receiving all these gifts from God because of his sovereignty. Right. So in chapter 8, we see that it's not enough that Haman be stopped because this decree was went out that basically you could exterminate Jews all over the kingdom. Right. right? It says from Ethiopia to India. Wow. I mean, that's a big kingdom. And so the Jews being eradicated could mean the end of the Jewish people right. permanently. But instead, Mordecai is given authority by, by uh, the king to write his own decree. And there's a lot of detail to it, but verse 11 of chapter 8 is, is important. Uh, that the, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, mm-hmm. children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So basically he writes sort of a, a blank check to Israel to destroy all of their enemies. Right. This is their chance to 
overthrow those who wanted to destroy them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what happens. So we see in chapter 9, uh, verse 1, right? Um, it says, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's irony, right? The, the Jewish people gained mastery over their enemies. Right. So the intention has been thwarted and reversed. And Haman's sons die. We see that in verse 10 of chapter 9. Mm-hmm. Haman's sons die as well. And again, the irony here is Haman wanted to hurt Mordecai's family, but ends up losing his own family. Right. So God is, is protecting his people. Now the book ends with the Feast of Purim being instituted. Um, this feast that's, again, named that because he cast these lots, these poor, when he was plotting against the Jews to decide when he would kill them. Hmm. And that God turned that on their head. That right. date was sovereignly ordained by God, not for the destruction of his people, salvation. for the victory yeah. and salvation of his people. Yeah. It's it's amazing. And the book is is truly amazing as to how it unfolds all of these all of these truths yeah. and in the way that it says it. So now so we come to the end of the book and we see that this is and we see Mordecai is honored, that Mordecai is in this position of power and influence and glory, and that he's able to, I'm sure, institute, you know, influence for his people as well. Now, there's, I, I got to point out, there's a lot of parallels in the story of Esther with previous stories. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't normally look ahead, obviously, at the, the New Testament, the gospel, but there's a lot of similarities with previous stories. Think of the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. Um, Longman and Dillard uh, are, were helpful for me with both of these uh, next two points, but there's parallels with the Exodus mm-hmm. and also with the Joseph story. That's so big. with Exodus, we see that there's two heroes that are in foreign court, courts. Mm-hmm. Right, the hero has been adopted in both cases, and both you know there's have stories have powerful men who are thwarted by women. Mm-hmm. Um, we see threats against the Jews and the the offspring, mm-hmm. the threat against the offspring in Genesis Genesis three. We see deliverance and vengeance on the foes of Israel, and we see the beginning of a festival at the end of the the, the account. Yeah. So there's a lot of similarities, and both feature the Amalekites. Yeah. As I mentioned, Exodus 17, after the Exodus, as they're going out, they encounter the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of similarities here that echo back to God's deliverance of those people back then is going to work in the same way now. Yeah. Maybe even, even more similarities are in between this story and the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Right, Joseph, who, who, again, we have two Jewish heroes who rise to power yep. in a foreign court. They're heroes that save the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph actually introduces his father to Pharaoh, yep. and Esther introduces Mordecai, her adopted father, to uh, Ahasuerus, mm-hmm. right? It gives him a place of influence. We see in both stories a monarch who cannot sleep, mm-hmm. um, and, and that actually is the key pivot point to bringing the, uh, salvation right. to, to the God's people. Um, both Joseph and Mordecai receive new clothes and are... Are they ride through the town and mm-hmm. are heralded and praised? Right. And then with Joseph and Esther, there's a common common reality of they both reveal their identity at a banquet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of similarities here. And so again, we're like I said, we're seeing God's way of working through His people and how He works in the same patterns again and again and again. Yeah. Amen. Even when they're when they're far from Him in a foreign land. Yeah. Amen to that. Um. So how does the New Testament uh, story? How does the gospel connect to to this part? I mean, there's such a big theme throughout all of Scripture, but especially in, on the cross, of evil destroying itself, right? Yeah. E- e- the evil intent of humanity being thwarted. Mm-hmm. As we went through the Gospel of John, we saw a lot of this, right? Caiaphas giving this prophecy 
He didn't know it was a prophecy, but he says, you know, it's better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish. Mm-hmm. And the, the Gospel of John says when he said that, he didn't know that he was prophesying. Mm. Right? He was stating a truth which is better than he knew. Right. He was trying to save his own skin, Caiaphas, but he ended up in, instead destroying himself. But God works salvation for his people through that anyway. Right. Um, that the intention of the people of Israel to mock Jesus as this false king to tear him down when really that's his enthronement. Right. There's great irony in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. For sure. And and really it's, you know, Satan's ultimate attempt to destroy God to, to commit this evil act. Yeah, it was his Satan hour, is, right? Is obviously, yeah, present there. Yeah. But it, it's the intent of God to bring the salvation of the world. Right. Salvation through judgment. That's right. right. Yeah. So a day of judgment and destruction becomes a ju- day of salvation, kind of yeah. like we had in the, in the book of Esther. Yeah. So that's a big theme. Uh, obviously, this statement from Esther of, if I perish, I perish. I mean, yeah. it, it makes us think of Christ, how he didn't just risk everything, but he actually perished. Yeah, he gave everything. Yeah, he yeah. actually laid down his life. If this is what it costs, this is what I will do. And he had to pay that price. Right. But he didn't stay dead. Right. right? He, came, he came back to life, so he's not stuck in that. And then we just again the providence of God in the death of Christ can be seen in so many in so many places. Uh, when things seem out of control on the cross, God is still in control. I think of Acts chapter two, verse twenty three. Let me just get there first. Right, this is this. So this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He says, "This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." Hmm. So that reminder of God's foreknowledge, his his predestination, his control was evident in the crucifixion of Christ. It's the same thing in chapter four mm. of Acts. Yeah. Right? When the, when the apostles are praying and they say that the the people against God, these enemies, Haman was a was a legendary enemy, but Herod and Pontius Pilate were as well. Right. And they did, verse twenty eight of chapter four, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Right. God's in control. He's in control in the darkest moment of human history, which is the crucifixion of Christ. Mm-hmm. So we see that as a theme so clear throughout all of Scripture. Yeah. Well, amen to God's sovereignty and His control and, yeah, His good plan for His people, right? That's right. So that's all we got for today. We'll see you guys next week for Daily Gospel.